it's Friday. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast. Welcome back to Steve. Well, thank you. And once again, welcome back to the topic of board games designed by Canadians. So I mentioned somebody on Wednesday who is a very close friend of the cafe, and I say that because he works here. <laughs> and in actual fact, there are multiple people who work here who are into game design, and Absolutely. we'll touch on a couple yeah. more. Uh, but one who has had a, a success recently is Paul Tseng, yes. uh, who designed the game Outer Earth that mm-hmm. I've seen sort of around on, on uh, sci-fi lists and things like that coming up here and there. Mm-hmm. And this is a game I have only had the chance to play once, so I'm not that familiar with it, but I've really enjoyed it. Have you got it to the uh, table? I've, I've played it once as well. I think I played it while it was still a prototype, actually. Right. And uh, it's funny, the year that I was down at Gen Con with the cafe, uh, that was the year, that was 2015, which is, I believe, uh, Paul was there as well. So right. This was before he worked for us, uh, but he was down uh, showing off uh, Outer Earth. Uh, nice. Yeah, neat game about uh, planet colonization and uh, network building. Like, yeah, well, you're, you're, you're essentially... things. Yeah, you're flipping planets. Yes. In the way that people flip houses where they, they sort of... You know, fixer-upper. Fixer-upper, fix uh, it up, and then sell it on. Too much methane in the atmosphere. <laughs> exactly. And it is. It's a very simple game at heart that has a lot of complexity to it, I think, where, you know, you, you're bidding for turn order and... Uh, you're taking cards and playing them onto something and there's a lot of concepts in here that are familiar to people who will play games but the way that Paul's implemented them I really enjoy and what you're doing is building up these planets and you're doing them by building a small as you say a network uh, of cards that matches a criteria that has been specified for this planet when you play one of these cards it has a number of uh, different possibilities because you play a card out and it has three possible exits mm-hmm. and you have to play a card that matches an exit that is sort of open mm-hmm. for that particular card and you gradually build up this little network until you've reached a critical mass and then you sell that planet on having developed it fully and then move on to the next one but there's just there's some cool things in here with penalties for having too much going on at once because you've overreached and mm-hmm. um, there are the superstructures which ultimately will end and, and probably uh, and will win you the game where if you complete certain patterns as you are building a planet, once you've completed that pattern, you get to take that superstructure card, things like mm-hmm. that. But there's there's quite a few moving parts here. But once you've pushed through, you know, what is not the easiest teach in the world, you actually come to a game that's surprisingly accessible, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed that. A lot of other people here are into game design as well. You yourself have some games yes. on the market. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I don't think I have, I have nothing in print at the moment. Nothing in print. Right. Um, but yeah, back in 99, I, uh, I designed a card game called Grave Robbers from Outer Space, the B-movie <laughs> card game. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it was to tackle the tropes and silly cliches you find in B-movie horror and science fiction films. Fair enough. Uh, I was actually, I was inspired because I was playing um, Before I Kill You, Mr. Bond, which is now known as uh, the James Ernest's totally renamed spy game because the people who own James Bond sued. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a, a game from Cheap Ass Games that was about being a James Bond villain and building a hideout that would withstand uh, the onslaught of a uh, pain-in-the-butt spy like James Bond. And I thought, why isn't there something like this about B-movies? And uh, and so I just sat down and started writing. And so that came out in... 
2001, I think, was when it got uh, officially released by Z-Man Games. Right. The first one was uh, a minor big success for them uh, and inspired ten games in the series, all tackling different genres of film. The year that uh, I released that through Z-Man was actually the year I met Eric Lang and uh, our... One of our gurus here, Jonathan Moriarty, right, uh, started up the Snakes cast. Indeed, um, they were uh, at Gen Con with uh, a game they had called Mystic Dominion, and it, uh, it was a, a strategic card game played with tarot cards. Nice, uh, and it was one if one of if not Eric Lang's first published games, and of course now he is. A huge force within board games. Absolutely is. Uh, and is Canadian. And is Canadian. And I'm going to put a pin in that for one minute because there's one thing I want to talk about before we come on to talk about him. Sure. And that is uh, something that I it is a resource I've made use of and a resource many other people have made use of that I think people should be aware of. And that's uh, the Board Game Designers Nights. Yes. This is something that we do here. This is something a lot of places will do. I have not had a game published. I haven't even finished a design yet. But mm-hmm. I do have designs that are in progress. And taking a design to a night like that is, you know, a terrifying thing to do for somebody who's wanting to build a, a really good game because you're, you know, it's that whole, it's the same as, as writing a book or a play or something like that. You're taking your baby to somebody else and saying, judge this. Yes. But the great thing about Game Designers Night here, and I'm sure this is true of many, many other and designers nights for people who are interested our game designer nights are the third monday of every month right. they are at our college street location unless otherwise stated because occasionally holidays and, and right. other events throw that into uh, confusion but generally speaking third monday of the month for sure and follow us on social media and you'll you'll you know we'll be announcing when those things are happening but the great thing about those is that everybody that comes along has an interest in designing in some way shape or form yeah and or they have an interest in being a playtester. Mm-hmm. There are people out there. I, I was in Eric Lang's playtesting group for quite some time. And, you know, it was something I got a great deal of pleasure out of. And people will do that. And it, whether they're another designer or whether they're just someone who's in it to try something new, you walk out there with a new understanding of how your game works. And yeah. that's how games get made. You yeah. have to playtest them. Yeah, and you have to have people that you don't know playtest them. Yes. That's the most crucial thing. That The number of... People I've seen pitch their games with comments like, oh, my friends love it. My family loves it. No one in publishing cares. Yeah, agreed. Same thing. You can't go to a a book publishing house or a movie studio and say, oh, yeah, my dad loves this manuscript. Nobody cares. Yeah. You know, uh, unless your dad was Hemingway or (laughs) uh, it doesn't (laughs) matter that people you know like the game. Yeah, uh, you have to get it tested by complete strangers because they're going to be honest and open with their feedback, and that's the only way your game is going to get better. Yeah, uh, by going to a game designers night, whether it's at Snakes and Lattes or whether it's at one of the other uh, places around the world that you'll see these sort of events. Yeah, uh, game stores often have them. Um, you'll get honest, open feedback. Absolutely, that is not there. To hurt your feelings. Yeah. It's there to tell you how they felt about your game and possibly, hopefully, uh, make it better. Yeah. And there are two things I would add to that. One is, it's absolutely okay to say to yourself, I like this game, and therefore I want to keep working at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mum likes this game, and therefore I want to keep... Use that feedback 
to give you the impetus to carry on. Yes. Just don't use it as a selling tactic. Yeah, no. You can use my friends love it at a game designer's night mm-hmm. to say, well, my friends have really enjoyed this. I think it's ready for somebody I don't know to have a crack at it. Yeah. That's where it stops. Yeah. Second thing, go to a game designer's night, drop the rule book on the table, and walk away. And come back 15 minutes later and see if they can play your game yet. That's for later on down the line. That's when you've gone there a few times yeah. and you'll get, you're kind of narrowing it down. It's when you know the game works. Yes. You know, at that point, when you, when you have a product that, that functions, that people enjoy, that the, it, it's been maybe not entirely polished. Because, sure. of course, the publisher is going to want to develop your game uh, once you've pitched it and signed it with them. But it's, it's, it's polished to the point where you feel it's, it's ready. Yeah. That's when now it's time to work on the rule book. Not the rules, but the rule book. Yeah. Uh, if people can't understand your game from just reading the rules that you've provided, something is wrong. Yes. Because uh, you're not going to be there every time a new customer opens up the game they just bought at their friendly local game store and takes it home to learn it. You can't possibly be there. So uh, you have to make sure that that rule book does the job of answering everybody's questions. Yeah. And also that, you know, it'll also come up with that thing that you go, oh, I totally didn't think that that could be interpreted that way. Mm-hmm. And I've had that recently. Me um, too. Even with big games, I was playing Explorers of the North Sea the other day and I looked at one of the uh, uh, captain powers that gives you bonus points at the end of the game and I went, huh. I get how this works, but the specific mechanism could work one of two ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Shem Phillips, the designer of that, is wonderful. I put a thing up on Board Game Geek, and I think within about two and a half hours, he replied and clarified everything. It's like, okay, great. But it's, you know, and that's a small example, because that's mm-hmm. a big game, yeah. and there was a tiny little misinterpretation that most people probably get right anyway. But there are rule books there that, like, I've, I've got a game at home that I have played, and I will call it out, but I have not played this game because I can't understand it. And that's not, you know, this, that one I think is a translation thing. Yes. But there are games out there where it is entirely, no one's dropped it on the table and walked away. They've always been there to go, oh no, that's not what that means, you do this. Anyway, enough of a diatribe on that. The, 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 the moral of this story is use game designers nights because people aren't there to hate on you. They are there to improve something. I went with a game design. Actually, my last anecdote on that, I printed out 540, well, it was just paper, but cards, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and I sleeved them behind my Magic the Gathering and Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and I mm-hmm. took them to a game designer's night, not at Snake, somewhere else, actually. And I spent two and a half hours with these two guys who played my game one and a half times in that two and a half hours, and it's meant to be a 20-minute game. Mm-hmm. And I walked out, and I went, right, well, that's a dice game then. Yeah. And now my game is designed around, you know, the, as it currently stands, is designed around about 50 cards and about 30 dice. Mm. And I, there was no bad feeling. I walked out of that going, this game just got better mm-hmm. because I now understand how it should work. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of feedback that you want to be taking out of this, and people will give it to you. So use these because they are a great resource. Yeah. Soapbox to one side, let's <laughs> talk about Eric Lang. Yes. Um, <laughs> the giant that I mentioned at the end of Wednesday's episode. I mean, he's just storming all over the gaming community right now with he, such great product. Yeah. He is a prolific game designer. He's recently, uh, I guess about a year ago now, about that, yeah. uh, was hired by Simon Games, uh, to be their head of game development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and even while he's doing that, he's still putting out his own games as well. The man, yes, he is. The, he's the hardest working 
person in game design that I know of. I would agree with uh, that. Uh, he's just constantly got prototypes on the go. Usually, you know, three to six of them at a time are in development at various stages. And uh, he's a little like uh, Uwe Rosenberg in that he'll get an idea and he'll revisit it a few times in sure. a few different games. Uh, so his much older game, Midgard, uh, a lot of people say it has many similarities to Blood Rage, and I think Eric would even be one of those people okay. uh, to I say that. Okay, uh, And then, of course, Rising Sun gets compared to um, Blood Rage by a lot of people. I don't think that's as reasonable a, a comparison. I mean, no. it, it has some similarities, but uh, they're, I think they're very different games. I think a lot of that would be aesthetic in the sense that yeah, yeah. you've got all your little troops, yeah. uh, your, you know, your, your uh, standard level people, and then you have the big monsters that you can bring out later on down the line, and I think there's a lot of visual similarity in terms of components. I don't think the games play the same. Mm-hmm. I've only played Blood Rage once. Um, I need to play it more. I play-tested Rising Sun a few times. Mm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The guy never stops producing. I, I remember I went to playtesting sessions, I think two weeks in a row at one point in time. And the first week I went, we playtested Rising Sun. And this was mm-hmm. it, it was in a form nothing like what now exists. Yeah. It was it was early on, not early, but, um, you know, it was a lot longer ago than, than uh, uh, the recent sessions where it felt mm-hmm. more like what it is now. The following week I played The Godfather, mm-hmm. which is just as big yeah. and, ju- you know, just as kind of not as big in terms of like number of components and stuff but in terms of complexity of game yeah. the two gigantic things that are both you know mm. percolating in his brain i he has an incredible mathematical ability and yeah he stopped games in playtesting sessions to go, okay, there's no point playing this because yes. I have changed this in such a mammoth way based on those two turns you just played yeah, that I've this had, game is moot. I've had that exact experience <laughs> with him. I I was a playtester on uh, Bloodborne. Right. Uh, I was also a uh, playtester on uh, Blood Rage. Right. Uh, and with both of those games at playtest sessions, uh, something would happen in the game or something some sometimes something would just be said about the gameplay and the way someone was thinking about making a move and he would just say stop we're done with this because that means i need to do something that completely overhauls yeah. the game and playing the rest of what we have right now is irrelevant because it won't be there anymore. Which is uh, astonishing. So it is. To be able to his, do that. His is... ability to just completely cut something out of his project. Like, I... It's astounding to, to watch him work like that. Yeah, it truly is. And I mean, the, the also the variety of games that he produces. I mean, you know, you have these huge map games like Rising Sun and Blood Rage. You have XCOM, which is one of my personal favorite games of all time, uh, that has this crazy real-time element that I don't think I've seen in any other of his designs. Yeah. Um, then you have Bloodborne, that's sort of this thinky card game that you're playing out. Uh, you know, you go back in the day to things like Chaos Ball, the the man's variety mm-hmm. is off the charts. Yeah, I think fun guy yeah. as well. Like just a, he's a great person. Uh, he works tirelessly at uh, making sure that gaming is a welcoming. Oh my goodness! Absolutely, uh, the, it, inclusivity is is big for him. Yeah, uh, and uh, he's he's just a fun guy to hang around with. Agreed. Agreed. 
Well, there we have it. There's a really good start. There's many more Canadian designers out there. And if we haven't mentioned you, it's only because we have a limited amount of time on this podcast, frankly. But there are many more designers and many more great Canadian games out there. But hopefully this has given you a nice soup son of things that are uh, at least known enough that you might go, oh, you know, I, I have heard of that game. I'll give that a try or what happened. And in a nice range of complexities and, yeah. and difficulty levels, like Eric Lang is not a designer for beginners no. by any stretch. Um, but that's when you want to, if you've got new people you want to introduce to games, that's when you go with a Daryl Andrews game. Yeah. Especially something like Sagrada or a Chris Chung game with, uh, you know, lanterns. Yeah. These are much more um, sort of uh, STJ level games. Sure. Things that are nice gateway games. Uh, and then when you want something that's meaty and big and sprawling, that's when you look to Eric Lang. Although not always, because sometimes he does, he'll surprise you. He'll do yeah. something... That is totally different. Yeah, but the, the other thing is he's also not uh, the highest end of complexity. Oh, no. no uh, he is not um, campaign for North Africa. Yeah. <laughs> no. So that's all we're going to have time for this week. But hopefully, uh, as I say, that's given you some information into some excellent Canadian board games for you to try out. Games uh, from the Great White North. Games from the Great White North, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed, Steve, for coming on and talking to me My about pleasure. this. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's a topic I am very, very fond of because I think Canada's producing a lot of great content right now. Mm. You can get in touch with us at podcast at snakesandlattes.com to say hi, to talk to us about any of the things we've been discussing on the podcast, whatever you wish. The Snakescast is produced by Dax Audio and music is provided by Ben Sound. The Snakescast is actually going to be going dark for a while. Um, we're turning internal right now with uh, some of our focus in the cafe and there's some things that we would like to work out going forward with the Snakescast. So we've decided that for the summer, we are going to take the Snakescast off the air and we will be back with you uh, in September with some further content and we are going we may have a couple of episodes in the meantime but we will not have the regularly scheduled stuff but do bear with us we will be back uh, the opinions expressed on the snakes cast are those of the presenters and guests and nobody else's we will see you in due course bye for now